Hey, again, good morning, Faith Bible family. In the words of Mr. Rogers, I'm so happy to see you, neighbors. Speaking of neighbors, we're about to wrap up our time meditating on Jesus' greatest command. By now, I'm sure that you can repeat back to me what those commands are. And if you're new or a guest or, or missed the last few weeks, let me let you into a, to the profound commands that Jesus left for his followers. They're found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Love God and love your neighbor. This is our, our seventh week on these two commands. Well, why have we spent so much time on them, you may be asking? Well, let me tell you. When Jesus, the one who died and then rose again, the one who bore the penalty for our sins so that we didn't have to, the one who literally took on the weight of the world and came through on the other side victorious for us, when he gives you something to do, the wisest thing that you can do is to listen close and then go out and do it. And so, uh, though the commands are pretty straightforward, we've spent the last seven weeks talking through some practical application of what it means to do what Jesus asked us to do. Uh, one more time, let's read Jesus' commands together. They're found in Mark chapter 12, 29 uh, through 31. And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Today's task is to have a discussion on what it means to love our enemies. Think about that term enemy. What does it mean? You might be thinking of that person in power who just seems to thrive on the destruction of all that you hold dear. You may be thinking of that kid in the neighborhood who throws rocks through your window. Enemy, the term enemy is a broad term. Merriam-Webster defines enemy this way, one that is antagonistic to another. That covers a lot of grounds. So now, I, I don't like it when people attack me or are against me or, or cause me problems. So we might be thinking, uh, do I really need to include those people in the list of neighbors who Jesus tells me to love? Can't I just let them go away? The fact of the matter is, yes, we do. Because when Jesus talks about neighbors, he casts a wide net. This includes friends, it includes family, it includes church people who you might be gathered with today. It also includes the people we just don't like or who we consider our enemies. In fact, Jesus point blank tells us to love our enemies in one of his most famous teaching moments. He says, I tell you, Jesus says this, love your enemies so that you may be children of your father in heaven. You wanna use the title of, of child of the king or resident of God's kingdom? Well, then that means that you are loving those people who were, you were taught to hate. Wow, go get them, Jesus. Or maybe I should say, give us more. And he does. In fact, uh, where we're going today is, is an encounter that Jesus has right after he gives probably his most famous series of, of teaching recorded in the Gospels. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus says that this is what the kingdom looks like. It's full of people you wouldn't think would be there. It's got the poor, the oppressed, the ones that nobody will listen to, the ones that get beat down for following me. And God doesn't just say, well, well done, putting up with the, uh, the less than ideal life that you were handed. No, he actually says, you are blessed. And not only does the kingdom look different from what you, you thought it was going to look like, the kingdom is going to act differently than you, you think it should. 
uh, we're not just going to stay away from wrong actions. We're going to explore wrong heart motives. We're, we're going to keep the marriage vows sacred and not dump one another when things get hard. We're going to tell the truth even when the lie would benefit us greatly. If you're slapped in the face, well, we aren't going to seek to slap the other person back. Or if you're, you're slandered against, we aren't going to use our power to slander that person back. We speak blessings on them. And that goes for our enemies as well. We're going to love them. And we're actually going to pray that they would have a prosperous life. We're going to give stuff away. We're not going to stress about it. We're going to work on, on clearing the obstacles that trip us up like, like logs in our own eyes instead of focusing on the speck of dust that we see in someone else. Jesus gives this sermon to the masses, to a, a huge crowd. He, he's up on the hillside with his disciples, his followers, and the crowd start to gather to hear this new teacher give a word. What, what will he say? Will he be sharing the same message that we heard from, from such and such a teacher? You can almost hear the murmurs. What's he going to say? Did he really say that we were going to inherit the kingdom of God? What's, what's that about the heart? Can you imagine being on that hill with Jesus and hearing him say these earth-shattering truths? I've been to some concerts. I've been in the presence of some, some pretty good artists and musicians. But, but this, this stands alone. And Jesus tells them all of these things, including to love your enemies. And the scriptures say that the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. And then to cap it all off, He's going to do something that the scribes would never do. A couple things, in fact. Jesus gives his sermon. He drops the mic, and then he walks down the mountain. And he, it says that the large crowds followed him. They were excited. Jesus was the, the new act on the block. It was like having your, your favorite celebrity or, or high-profile figure come right into your neighborhood, and, and you get to follow them around all day long. Can you, can you picture that? And when he walks down the mountain, the crowds followed. And, and, they, uh, and then I think they took a, a quick step back. Why? Well, Matthew records in chapter 8 of his gospel that a man with leprosy came up to Jesus right away. And I say that Jesus is going to do some things that the other scribes, the other teachers wouldn't do. He invites the man into the inner circle so that he can make, uh, make a request of Jesus. This is a jaw-dropping moment. This is a take a step back moment for the rest of the people. You can almost hear the collective gasp. What, Jesus, what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to handle this? More importantly, how is Jesus going to turn this man away and, and send him back to where he came from? That's what they would have wanted. Aren't there places set aside for people like you? Certainly not here in the crowds. You really want to spread that leprosy around? But after talking about the poor and the hurting, Inheriting the kingdom of heaven, Jesus puts his money where his mouth is and brings kingdom freedom to this man. The request is, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be made clean. And he gives the man a touch, something that he probably hadn't experienced in a long time. A, a life-giving touch, a friendly touch, a, a touch of love, a healing touch. And, and the leprosy is gone. Jesus isn't willing to stay on the mountain, content to give the people a word. No, Jesus 
is the one who who does. He's the one who goes. He's the one who speaks. And then he acts. And this man who was healed from leprosy is living proof of the power of Jesus' words spoken on that mountain. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is going to do a couple of things that the scribes wouldn't do. Healing the man as he came down the mountain is one of them. But the next one, uh, to me, is, is even more amazing and is a huge game changer for the people who are expecting Jesus to, to usher in a kingdom like every other kingdom they had ever experienced. Jesus comes down the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount and he heads over to Capernaum. Let, let's read Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 13 together. Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 13. And, and Matthew records this in his gospel. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is is lying at home paralyzed in in terrible agony. And he said to him, Am I to come and and heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and from west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Wait, Nick. I, I thought you said that Jesus was going to do something else, something different. This is just another healing. He, he just did that. And leprosy, that's an amazing act of healing right there in the spot. Why is the servant's healing any different? Well, when we read passages like this, we, we Western Christians often miss the power of stories like this. His original audience would have gotten this right away. When the text says a centurion comes to Jesus, the author is saying a Roman citizen is coming to Jesus. And not just any Roman citizen, a Roman citizen with power, and and one from a group who is not known for being the most hospitable to the Jewish people. The leper at least was from their tribe. This man, he's an outsider. Now, about 60 years before Jesus was born, Rome had conquered the Jewish people. The Romans would consider it liberation. But like any empire, it was about power, territory and spreading their influence as far and as wide as they could. The Roman general Pompey swept into Jerusalem and captured the capital, officially adding the Jewish nation to the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans didn't really have the most positive thoughts uh, about the Jewish people. The Romans were, were so perplexed by the Jewish practices that they considered them an odd people. They worshiped one god, who considered himself so good that he couldn't be compared or added to the gods in the Roman pantheon. And so when Pompey conquered Jerusalem, one of the first things that he did was to march himself into the temple of the Jewish god in order to see what all the fuss was about. He he climbed the steps of the temple. He walked right through the heavy curtain separating the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. And, And to his surprise, he found nothing. No stone image, no carved deity for the people to worship and to give offering to. What he would have found there were temple utensils used by the priest as they were allowed to enter that most holy place. Well, 
Pompey wasn't impressed, and he left the temple pretty much intact right there. These crazy Jews, they built this huge palace, this huge temple to a god they can't even see. And he walks out and takes about a thousand or so Jewish prisoner, prisoners with him back to Rome. Now, later on, another general would, would enter the temple and pillage everything of value for Rome. So the Jewish people were not really fond of what they had experienced under Roman rule. It was cruel. It was cruel. And, and the Roman people did not, um, did not accept the Jewish people. And now, when the Roman centurion approached Jesus, the crowds would have gone quiet. What was going to happen? This man who was part of the, the conquering empire, the empire that didn't recognize them as God's called out people, the empire that enslaved their people and hauled them off to, to the corners, the far corners of the globe, the empire that put up with their religious practices, but in reality mocked them for their beliefs and considered them a terrible and stubborn people to rule. This is an empire that put Pontius Pilate into power. The emperor, the emperor gave Pilate the Jewish territory, and, and it's said that Pontius Pilate introduced the practice of crucifixion to the community. This was the most vile and torturous punishment probably ever created by man. Death caused by hanging men and women on a tree, a cursed death for the Jewish people. And for Jesus, this was an empire that put King Herod in place to rule over his people. A king who, when he heard Jesus, the potential king, when he heard that Jesus was born, he ordered, King Herod ordered the death of all the boys, zero to two, in a jealous fit of rage. And Herod caused Jesus' family to go into exile for their own safety, to flee. The man standing before Jesus represented everything bad, everything evil, everything wrong with his people's current situation, and the pain he himself had experienced since the day he was born, and reminded a reminder for him of what was to come in the future. Everything that had to do with Rome was tainted, it was unclean, and this man was no different. And here he is standing before him, and what is Jesus going to do? And it says, Lord, my servant is lying home paralyzed in agony, in terrible agony. But, well, good, he deserves it. You expect me, a Jew, to go to a Gentile house and perform a miracle for one of the most ruthless men in the country? You see, this man just wasn't a citizen. He was a Roman soldier, and not just any soldier. This man was a, a centurion. A centurion was an elite soldier, a soldier with power and position. And centurions kept their power by violence. Not only were they known to be brutally, uh, to, to brutally punish the common people, they were also known to punish the men in their own ranks in extremely brutal ways. The vine stick was a symbol of the centurion, and it stood for the harsh punishments that they would deal out. There's a story of a centurion who was given the name Cato Alterum, which means, fetch me another. The story goes that he was punishing a soldier in his unit, and he went so far as to break this vine stick over the man's back, and he called out in a loud voice, for another, and another, and another. The Jewish, the, the Jewish people, they hated the Romans, and the, the hate went both ways. The Romans didn't know what to do with the Jewish people. The Jewish people kept themselves separate from the rest of the world. They didn't follow the great pantheon of gods, and they had a sense of superiority as a people. And since the gods controlled the harvest and the prosperity of the nation, it was critical to have everyone appease the gods. And those Jews just wouldn't do that. The Romans saw the local Jews as racists and unwilling to join the rest of the world. It, it repulsed them. And when things went wrong, they couldn't help but blame the Jews. 
And the man who stood before Jesus was no joke. When he approached, the crowds would have gotten quiet and, and maybe even expected the centurion to question or even haul Jesus off as a rabble rouser. It got real for them when this guy walked up to Jesus, but he didn't draw a sword. He asked for a favor. Have you ever had someone ask you for a favor after they had totally spit all over your relationship? You just bullied me in the hallway, and now you want me to, to help you with your math homework? Really? You want to borrow money from me? You, you still haven't paid me back for the money you borrowed last month and the month before, and you expect to give me to give you more and more and more? You really want to borrow my best tools? The last time I let you into my garage, you brought back a ruined skill saw. You dare to ask me for another tool? What do you mean you want to be friends? Last time we went out, you, you stuck a knife in my back by blabbing everything that I had shared with you in confidence. I think at this point in the story, the eyes of the crowds are, are shooting daggers towards the centurion, and, and they would have felt pretty justified in their actions. They love the, their teachers. They love this teacher, and they love the miracle worker, Jesus. But this kind of question was going to be way too much for them. You see, it's easy to become a Christian, but being a follower of Jesus is harder. It's easy to throw up the hashtags love and hope and kingdom kids, but Jesus didn't call us to a hashtag life. He called us to a life of action. And with the centurion, he goes into action by inviting him in with a question. Am I, am I to come and heal him, Jesus says? Are you asking that I come to your house and heal him? And the centurion replies, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. You're darn right. You don't deserve me to come over to your house. And all these people gathered around me, they definitely think going to your house is out of bounds. But he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus could have said, tell you what, this is a hard pass for me. And everyone around him would have said, yes, that's the right thing to do. The, the centurion might have even expected it. Jesus being Jesus could have said, I know what the future holds. <laughs> We're going to meet again at the cross. And you guys won't be asking me for favors then. Our relationship is going to look a whole lot different when the cross happens. It's going to be very painful for me. But Jesus comes down the mountain a mountain where he had just told his followers to love their enemies. And he says, this isn't just for the billboards. This is a lifestyle. And he demonstrates to them exactly what he's been talking about. Jesus reverses the way things work. He counters the culture, if you will. Jesus allows this man who everyone wanted to avoid because he stood for everything that they hated. He invites him to come into the inner circle and to inquire of a favor from Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I, I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And with his words, his request, and his attitude, the Bible says that Jesus was amazed. It says in verse 10, Jesus was amazed. The Son of God was amazed. The Bible only mentions a couple times when Jesus was amazed. It's recorded that he was amazed in Mark 6, chapter 6, verse 6. He's amazed by the lack of people's faith. 
And here in Matthew 8, Jesus is again amazed, but not by the lack of faith, but by the strong faith of a man who was an outsider. Verse 10 says, Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him. He didn't just say this to the centurion. I'm amazed by you. He told the whole crowd of followers, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such a great faith as you. I tell you that many will come from east and from west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into, uh, into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying to this man, your faith is putting my people to shame. In fact, this kind of faith, this kind of dedication and recognition of of kingdom work is going to put you right at the banquet table. You realize that the work that I am doing is meant for all and not just for a select few. And in fact, those who thought they were the select few, they're going to have a rude awakening when they find themselves cast away from the great banquet table being put out for those who are children of God. You see, we want to focus on categories. Who's right and who's wrong? Who's strong and who's weak? Who's on my side and and who's against me? Who's my friend and who's my enemy? And we gather in groups and tribes to try and protect ourselves and make ourselves feel comfortable and secure. Jesus breaks down the categories and he says, don't you see how the gospel message, the good news about my father's kingdom is for everyone, even those that we think are on the outside, even those that we would call our enemies. Doing good for those in our, in our own circles, well, that's easy. The world does that. We see that today. You're a Democrat. Well, that, that's fine and dandy. You're on the team. I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. You're a Republican. Hey, perfect. You're in the club. I'll look over your sins. You can keep my secrets and and we'll get along just fine. Jesus says that in this great big world, there is no one in or out for God's kingdom. There is no you and not them. There is no attack those people who slander you and persecute you. The ones who make your life difficult in God's kingdom, there is just us. We are called. There is just the human race being called to a deeper and deeper relationship with God. And so Jesus doesn't just watch. He doesn't just say, watch me. He says, follow me, which roughly translates, do what I am doing. It's really no wonder we tend to reduce our faith to a label. It's easy to be a Christian. It's it's hard to be a follower of Jesus. But are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we willing to be content just being a Christian? A follower moves. And and Jesus saw us coming. He saw generations of Christians who were going to be content to know but not to do. Generations of people who really liked the things that, that he had to say. Generations who would make bumper stickers and banners and greeting cards out of some of his most popular teaching. He knew the temptation was going to be to, to take in, to know but we are going to have a hard time on the movement part because the last story he told in his Sermon on the Mount, he says this in Matthew 7, 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He says, if you hear and you aren't moved to do, then you are really acting like a fool. I don't know of anyone here who wants to have their lives categorized by the word fool or foolish. Well, what's going on in our country right now? You know, we we have an opportunity to model a different path. This is what the series has has been all about. 
am I, are we hanging on to those critical commands that Jesus left for us? Are we asking ourselves in each interaction that we have with someone else, our family, our friends, those we disagree with, our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, our enemies, are we asking ourselves, what is the most loving thing that I can do for them right here and now? Jesus gave his teaching. He, he dropped the mic. He walked down the mountain to walk his talk. And he did it so that the message of the kingdom of heaven would spread far and wide. He did it to show the people around him that everyone could find a place in God's family. And he did it to show us that this kind of life is possible and available for all of us to live out. So next time when you're, you're sitting around the dinner table with the family that you like and those that uh, you have a, a bit of trouble with, what does love look like? When you're gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ, what does love look like? When you are engaging in social media and discussions with those, maybe with those you have different views uh, than, than you do, what does love look like in that moment? When Jesus says, you've, you've asked me about the greatest command that, that we should follow, let me tie two of them together. They build off one another. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Show love to all of those people that you're going to live with in your homes, who you're going to work with, who you're going to see on the street, and even those uh, who, who seem to do, do nothing but attack you and beat you down. That's the command I want you to follow. I want to leave us with a few questions to keep the conversation going. We'll, we'll pop these up on the screen after we go through them, so, so please write them down and, and use them for personal reflection or a, as a group discussion later on. Question number one, if you were going to name the person or persons who get under your skin more than anyone else, who would that be? You can keep this private if you want, but let's agree that it's all right to recognize them. It's our first step on this, this path of love. Question number two, what step could you take today to look at that adversary in, in a different way? And question number three, Final question here, what habits do you have in your own life that keep you in bondage to someone else's actions or words? Maybe these are the, the things that, that keep you in attack mode. Are, are these habits worth changing in your life? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we need your strength, we need your guidance, and we need your wisdom. We do not want to be a, a foolish person, but we want to be someone who actually hears your word and then does it. And it can be hard to love our enemies. That can be a very difficult thing. And so, Lord, we need your strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit that you have provided for us to actually go out and do that. Thank you so much, Lord, for not leaving us alone, for, for giving us the power to live this life, not just to hear your words, but to actually go and do them. We come to Jesus thanking you for everything that you have given us, everything, that this new life that you provided for us. We come in your name. Amen.